Welcome to Unleashed at Work and Home, the show dedicated to helping veterinarians, vet techs, dog trainers, shelter and rescue workers, pet sitters, and all the other animal-crazy pet professionals manage their stress and find more joy. I'm your host, Colleen Pilar, and I'm thrilled you're here with us today. Make sure you hit the subscribe button on your favorite app so that you won't miss a single episode. This episode is brought to you by our free community, the Circle of Resilient and Thriving Pet Professionals. If you like the ideas shared here, then you're invited to continue the conversation with other lifelong learners in the community. You can find out more at ColleenPilar.com. It's the perfect place for you to learn cool stuff, feel good, and take action to create the life you love. Come join us. My guest today is Misty Hampton. She's a certified cat behavior consultant with fellow creatures pet consulting. And we're going to be talking today about all sorts of things, but I'm going to tell you right up front that we just had the most fascinating conversation over the last 20 minutes before we realized I didn't hit record. So (laughs) I am very grateful to Misty for being so accommodating and starting over with me. Thanks, Misty. Welcome. You betcha. (laughs) It's sort of the whole art of being human, as I said, right there at that moment of we all make mistakes and we all have to pick back up. And that is such a big part of being a pet professional. And it's also frustrating still, you know, (laughs) and It's one of the things that we do a lot with our clients of helping them realize where things went wrong and then turn it back around and get things going right. So cats are a species that that are of particular interest from that particular focus because so few people actually train their cats and very few people believe that cats can be trained. So tell me, how did you become a cat behavior consultant? And what is it that you wish people understood about cats? Those are great questions. My whole journey to becoming a cat behavior consultant started when I was young. I've always loved animals. And my grandma growing up, she always would say she didn't like snakes or spiders or any animal that was like kind of creepy or different. She even thought some of them were kind of evil. So I really grabbed onto that when I was young and wanted to relate to those misunderstood creatures, which included spiders and snakes and even cats. Many people you know, portray cats as being jerks because they just kind of do what they want. But I think that that's really um, a misunderstanding of our relationship to cats. So growing up, I always had animals in my life and my family used kind of a traditional approach to dealing with undesired behavior from our cat. So if our cat like jumped up onto the counter, did something we didn't want, we would just spray them with a squirt bottle Or if we pet the cat and the cat got tired of it and grabbed onto us and tried to bite, we would just kind of like shake the cat off. That was our traditional approach. So I didn't know any different way of relating to cats when I was an adult and my husband and I got a cat of our own. We tried using those same approaches with him because that's what we had learned. That's what we knew. That's, you know, we thought that was what you do. And when we sprayed Linus, our big orange fluffy cat, with the spray bottle to try to get him to get down off the dining room table, he reacted completely differently than I had seen in the past from my other cats. He 
reached out and tried to swat at us, tried to scratch us, tried to bite us. We also found that he would approach us. He's really friendly. He would rub up against us and purr, but you could only pet him three or four times before like a switch would flip in his brain and he would turn around and bite you. And it seemed like it was completely out of the blue and I didn't understand what was going on. So that was the point where I was like, there's got to be a better way of relating to these animals than what I saw growing up with my family. So I started digging into all the books and resources that I could find to try to learn about cat behavior and understand how to relate with my cat better. And I also started volunteering and eventually became an employee at the local cat shelter, cat adoption team, gained a lot of great hands-on experience there to go along with my book knowledge and all the things I was learning. And so eventually I became a certified cat behavior consultant, moved on from cat adoption team. And now I'm working at an aquarium warehouse where I get to work with fish on a regular basis. And that's my new chapter in fellow creatures is working with aquarium and terrarium pets. They're another group of animals, huge group of animals that I think is very much misunderstood um, that people get them as pets for different reasons, but they don't always form a connection or a relationship with them and understand their needs in terms of like enrichment and how they can train them to experience less stress when they catch them or transfer them from their terrarium into a different enclosure space. So I'm really all about, my goal is to improve animal welfare by helping to build better relationships between humans and the other species of animals that we share our lives with. That's what fellow creatures is all about. That is awesome. And very important and whole categories of animals that have not had nearly enough attention paid to them. But presumably in high school, you weren't thinking this was your trajectory. (laughs) What were you thinking you were going to do with your life? I always knew I wanted to work with animals. Um, When I was about six years old, I thought I wanted to have the largest petting zoo in the world. And when I was 12, my mom actually let me adopt a whole ton of different animals. Um, That was back when the classified ads were a thing instead of Craigslist. Mm -hmm. So every weekend at my grandparents' house, I would take a highlighter and highlight all the free animals in the classified ads and be like, I wish I could adopt all of them. And one day, I don't know what came over my mom, but she said yes. She said I could have anything that was free as long as it wasn't a reptile or a rodent. So I got to adopt a whole ton of different animals and bring them into my classroom where my classmates helped me care for them and they became our class pets. And that's when I figured out that a petting zoo was not the direction I wanted to go. (laughs) Because when you have like 30 or more animals, that's a lot of poop to scoop. That's a lot of poop it's really not that fun. It's better when you can have, I think, just a few animals that you have a really great quality relationship with, and you can spend more time with them individually and give them the enrichment that they need. And you'll gain more from those relationships than if you just have an entire zoo full of animals all in your own responsibility. Absolutely. I agree. I'm so curious now, though, that we have the grandma who is really not into animals and the mom who's like, sure, adopt anything. Are they in the same family or are they opposite sides of the opposite. Okay. Opposite. Yeah, um, my grandma was on my dad's side and my dad was always huge into animals, but um, more into like wildlife and nature. I thought for a time about becoming a wildlife biologist, but realized that with all the changes in that happen in government organizations, it wouldn't necessarily be the consistent, stable 
type of career path that I wanted to follow. And the priorities and direction of the organization would be changing depending on who was in charge at the time. Mm -hmm. So I want to be able to be more independent and thus the behavior consultant trajectory. Um, It actually happened after I became a teacher. That was what I spent many of my early years doing. And I still consider myself a teacher. That's This is just an extension of that. Yeah. I think there's so many similarities um, in being an actual classroom teacher of humans and doing the kind of work that we do with animals, because it's a lot of creating safe learning environments for both species. You know, Yeah. So much of it is the same. And I think that's what really, that's what shaped a lot of my worldview and brought me to the name of fellow creatures, because Mm -hmm. so often we say, oh, they're animals. They're completely different from us. They behave in these much more primitive whatever ways. It's like, they're really not that different. If you strip away the layers of culture from our behavior underneath, they're the same. And so we can use these same amazing positive reinforcement approaches. Yeah, maybe I'm not going to give my coworkers dog biscuits, but we can shape each other's behavior in positive ways using the same kinds of training techniques. I've really embraced, you know, Dr. Susan Friedman's kind of concept of the humane hierarchy. Mm-hmm. And I apply that to any time I want to change a behavior, whether it's my own or my spouse or my coworkers or my cats, and it all works the same. Yeah, she is amazing. Absolutely. I could listen to her endlessly. Yeah. And I will link in the show notes because I I talked to her previously too. So from adopting Linus to actually professionally working with cats, what was that timeline? Well, I've had Linus for seven years. (laughs) It's kind of a funny story. It sort of started when my friend Kim came over to play some games with us. And at the start of our game night, she showed me a picture on her phone. She was like, do you know anybody who wants a kitten? And I was like, um, me. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't specifically, wasn't specifically in the market for a new pet at the time. But she showed me this picture of, and I can even send it to you afterwards. (laughs) It's adorable. This picture of this fluffy orange kitten. We had an older cat at the time, but this fluffy orange kitten absolutely captured my heart. And I was like, I've always wanted an orange kitten. I really want this cat. And so I made a deal with my husband. I was like, hey, if I buy you a new camera, can we adopt a kitten? And so he was (laughs) like, okay, sure, I'll get a new camera. And I'll probably like the kitten anyway. So this is a good deal for me. So he said, yes. We had Linus for about a month when we realized that we were... We were laying in bed at the time and Jesse, like, he he put his hand on my shoulder and he goes, I hate to admit it, but I think we need to adopt a second kitten. (laughs) (laughs) Linus was literally beside the bed, looking up at us with those huge, I'm going to (laughs) pounce on your face eyes. (laughs) And we were like, oh, this is not good. And our older cat, of course, was experiencing stress as a result. So we brought in another kitten. We got Jasper. and. Then about a year later, our older cat, Roxy, passed away, and we felt like we needed some female cat energy in the house. So Jessie went out and adopted Abigail, and she was kind of rescued off the street and brought into one of our local pet shops that we like to go into and support. And so we adopted her there. He surprised me, actually, with her. And then the next year, there was another litter of 
kittens born in an Albertsons parking lot. And we helped with the capture and spay neuter efforts. And the kittens were right at about six week mark. So under socialized for sure. But some of them we really connected with. And so we took them home. And sadly, one of them passed from hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, which might be something that your veterinary audience is familiar with. Mm -hmm. That was really sad. And that actually her passing was one of the things that spurred my journey into really digging deep into understanding cat behavior more because she had been very afraid and trying to get her into a carrier for her spay neuter surgery was really scary. And my husband got scratched. And that was when I discovered the whole concept of cooperative care, which just opened up my world so much. Like that is absolutely essential for cats, I think. Yeah. So that was that. And then the next year <laughs> as I was working, oh, this is before I was working at Cat Adoption Team. Um, this was 2017 was the last, cat, no, 2018. 2018 was the last <laughs> cat that we adopted. And this was because all the cats would snuggle me at night on the bed. And my husband was getting jealous and he kept adopting more cats with me in the hopes that one of them would be his baby. And, mm-hmm. and he's like, fine, we'll try one more time. And if this doesn't, if this cat doesn't like me, we're not getting any more cats ever. And I had just fallen in love with the look of this cat. It was an adorable little calico cat that was available for adoption through cat adoption team. They were at the same time having a free adoption event at the shelter or a discounted adoption event at the shelter, but this cat was at a separate location. So we went there, we saw her, and I was just telling Jesse at the time, like, let's just go look at this cat. I would love to have a cat that looks like this one day because she's so cute. And no carrier in the car, no intention of actually adopting, at least Jesse didn't think. So we met this cat. She started playing on Jesse's lap. And I stayed back intentionally and she really decided that she liked my husband. Mm-hmm. I was able to convince him pretty easily, actually, <laughs> to adopt her. So at that point, we had five cats. Um, and it, since Piper became Jesse's girl, then we're done adopting cats. For the- so that actually worked even at home. She still will gravitate to him. Yeah. Um, she's actually kind of clingy and it's adorable. She'll follow <laughs> him around the house. And if he goes in the bathroom, she'll sit outside in the hallway and meow at him until he comes out of the bathroom. And then she'll jump up onto his shoulder and like follow him around the house or ride on his shoulder around the house. It's adorable. And in the morning when the alarm goes off, she'll come and she'll sit on my chest, nice and calm and purr. But when the alarm goes off, she'll switch over to Jesse's chest and start like nibbling on his cheek <laughs> and like biting his nose and sticking her paw in his eyeball. <laughs> like, wake up, human. It's time to feed me. Adorable. <laughs> I think it's so cute. So, yeah, that was our cat family described. They don't all get along perfectly. Um, you know, just like if you were to have five human children, <laughs> there would be some moments of tension. So, I've learned a lot about managing the environment and doing various behavioral interventions to help them coexist peacefully. So tell me, what is the best part about being a cat behavior consultant? Oh, gosh, that's a good question. Um, I mean, I think just seeing people's eyes light up when they realize that their relationship with their cat can be so much better than they ever imagined and that 
they actually can train their cat and that their cat doesn't have to be afraid all the time and hiding whenever they bring out the carrier to take the cat to the vet. Like their cat's quality of life can be so much better and that they can change their cat's behavior. Whereas many times they just assume that this is how my cat is. I have to live with it. It can't be changed. And that isn't the case. All they have to do is reach out for help and they'll realize that maybe they should have reached out a lot sooner. (laughs) (laughs) And I do think culturally we're getting better about teaching people that there is help available with cats, but it's still lagging considerably behind the dog world where people do think like, oh, I have a problem with my dog. I can get training. And people think I have a problem with my cat. I might not be able to keep it. And that messaging is is difficult, I think. Shifting, but not not as quickly as I'd like, but definitely shifting. Yeah, you're absolutely right. It's an it's an upstream swim for sure, fighting against that cultural fog. Yeah. So what for you is the hardest part about being a cat behavior consultant? Getting people to let go of long-held beliefs that aren't true. Mm. Like I can tell people that oftentimes cats, if they're eliminating outside the litter box, that there's a reason for it. And some of my friends who are animal people themselves will insist that no, their cat is doing it out of spite. And that she knows better and that she's just peeing on my shoes because she's angry that I brought home, you know, this new boyfriend. And they're animal people. They love animals. They want what's best for their animals. But they are steeped in this cultural fog, the way that they grew up relating to those animals. And it's hard to disarm that and get people to let it go because I don't want them to feel like, I'm attacking them or telling them that they're wrong. I'm just trying to give them extra tools to relate to their animals better. Yeah. And the extra tools phrase is important because there isn't a whole lot of value in terms of how do we move forward when we think this animal is being spiteful and manipulative toward me. And to just even shift the perspective to this animal is experiencing stress or whatever shift you want to make changes how the person shows up. Absolutely. Yeah. But it's hard to do that without making them wrong. It really is. They have to be in a place where they're open to consider other perspectives. Because if you go to talk with one of your friends about, you know, your husband and you're like, oh, my husband leaves his socks on the floor because he's a jerk, then there's no opening for conversation or opportunity Mm -hmm. to influence that behavior or talk to your husband and say, Hey, you know, when you do this, this is what I experience. Is there a way we could do this differently? Would you mind considering this? You know, if we just assume that he does it because he's an inconsiderate jerk, then we're going to build resentment towards him, but we're never going to change that relationship and make it better. Yeah. And That really demonstrates how important it is for us to think about what we think about behavior and be a little bit aware of that and curious about that. Because in one of my group discussions a while back, somebody gave an example of a behavior and I'm not even remembering what it was exactly. But one person said that 
whatever the client said made them very angry. And another person said, oh, if a client had said that to me, it would have made me very sad. And another was like, oh, I would have been ashamed. Like that was about me. And I was like, let's take a moment and explore that because the client didn't change. The client's behavior was the client's behavior, but we had angry and sad and and ashamed. That is all the messaging that we're having inside about what's happening. And so with our cats, I, I had mentioned to you that I say my cat is talking to me all the time and my husband says my cat is yelling at him all the time. The behavior is the same. Mm -hmm. She is just wandering through the house, expressing opinions quite loudly (laughs) all day long. But I see it as a conversation and he sees it as a criticism that has impact. And he adores this cat. So just to be super clear, he will tell you it's his cat and I'm allowed to live here too. But (laughs) I think that uh, she and I have a good relationship too. So I'm going to count her as my cat as well. But that story matters. That story matters a lot. Absolutely. The stories that we tell ourselves so much color our perception and we go into interactions with all that story in our mind. And many times that story could be false. And I don't know where I first encountered that idea, but it definitely was in the animal training world of think about the story that you're telling yourself. So whenever I'm like, oh, this person's not responding to my text because they're angry at me. Mm-hmm. Then I have to stop myself and be like, okay, this person has three children, has two jobs. You know, my friend is probably really busy. Also, it's nine o'clock at night. So he might have already gone to bed. Like, there's no reason for me to assume that this is about me and to take it personally and be upset. And even if that was, even if he was upset with me, what good does it do me to? put that on myself and to think about that all night long until I see him at work the next day to be thinking this person is mad at me. That doesn't serve me. That doesn't help me. If he is mad at me, he should come and talk to me about it and we can resolve it. But I really need to stop when I have those kinds of thoughts and say, what are the stories that I'm telling myself in this moment? Is it possible that there's an alternative? Mm -hmm. Is it possible that this story isn't true? And how is this story impacting me and the way that I go into this conversation? There is actually one coworker um, at the aquarium warehouse that nobody seems to relate to very well. Mm-hmm. And everyone throws out labels about this person, saying that this person is a jerk, this person is really hard to work with, blah, 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 blah. And I found that if I strip away those labels and I try to just go into the conversation like, what would a reasonable human do? Why would a reasonable human react this way? Then I can have effective conversations with this person and not take things personally too much when this person is critical of my work because they have their own story and they have their own experiences and it's not about me. I don't have to take it personally. Doesn't mean I have to be best friends with this person. But I can work with this person effectively without being too upset. And so that's really great. Yeah, that makes a huge difference. And it it makes a huge difference for both of you without that other person having to know anything about what you're doing to set the situation up for success. Yeah. Because it's just an internal game. You know, like, how do I set myself up for success in this relationship is not leaping to the label, which which we are wired to do. 
but they're not always helpful labels because our brains are wired for what could be bad here. Oh, look, I found something bad. Amazing. You were mentioning like we can throw out resources that we've found helpful and related to that, like how we approach conversations with other people. One of the things that's been really influential for me is nonviolent communication. Mm-hmm. So not necessarily following it like a formula, but just taking it on as a mindset when I'm approaching conversations with other people. Like, how can I make this feel like it's a conversation to meet both of our needs rather than it's a confrontation of why you're wrong? Yeah. Yeah. And that makes such a huge difference because... When we feel like someone is making us wrong, we are not in a position to learn or shift or grow. Yeah. But when someone says, you know, here's how I'm experiencing this without making us wrong, we can kind of go, oh, <laughs> I had I had no idea that's how that was coming across. And we are more able to shift or explore what could be another option. Yeah. And I think that's especially important if you're a behavior consultant, especially when you're working with, you know, species like cats that are so often misunderstood is there are so many misconceptions in our culture about cats. And many of us grew up with training them or relating to them in a certain way. That is basically, I'm going to be telling people that their way of relating to their cat is wrong, but I want to find a way to do that. That looks more like us coming to the table together and looking at here is the behavior that is problematic for you what are some reasons that the cat might be doing this behavior? What can we do to modify the environment so that the cat won't engage in this behavior? Because the cat's probably not doing this just to make you angry. (laughs) The cat is probably doing this because it meets one of their needs. How can we find a way to bring everyone's needs to the table and problem solve? And that way it doesn't feel so much like I'm telling the client that they're wrong. It's more like, Let's bring our solutions to the table together. Share with me your observations, your experience. I'll share with you my experience and my observations. We'll put those together into a behavior change program that works for the client meeting them where they're at. And allows them some dignity about the stories from their past. Because when we're not careful with this, people can feel like, oh, now I see something I didn't see before, which means that for the last 30 years, I've been awful to my cats. And we need to help people see that they did the best they could with what they knew. And now they see more and they understand more and they can do differently. And they, you know, there is a line. We we don't want to, you know, set people up for this shame spiral that some people will get into. And so that kind of conversation, particularly with the tools of nonviolent communication, can help support that growth forward and keep the focus forward as opposed to any blaming or judgment or uh, you're a bad person, which is what even completely innocently and inadvertently clients have picked up from many, many, many behavior people. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Um I can share some of my own personal experience with those clients and say like, even I did things this way when I first started. And like my mentor, Tabitha Kusera likes to say, now that we know better, do better, which I think is a saying from, is it Maya Angelou? Maya Angelou. Excellent. Mm -hmm. So now that we know better, we can do better. And there's no shame in 
the way that we did things in the past, like Tabitha Casera would share stories about how when she was going through veterinary school, they used to scruff cats. And then she discovered that there was a better way. And so she's definitely going into veterinary practices and telling them that they're doing things wrong, but she's telling them in a compassionate way of like, here's how we can do things better. And you don't have to be the bad guy anymore. And this can be a less stressful experience for the animals in your care. Yeah. And that matters a lot. Absolutely. That matters a lot. So I always ask guests to provide words that have meaning for them. And I love the words you shared. You shared replace should as a phrase that has meaning to you. So tell me a little bit about replace should. Um, Well, I have to give credit to Dr. Chris Pockle. His podcast episode with you is where that kind of started for me. And I grew up in a very, um, gosh, I don't know how to, how to explain it the best, but a, a very shame based religious culture as a young person and family culture steeped in it, absolutely steeped in it. Everything Mm -hmm. was about, you should do this to be a good person. You should do this and manipulating other people using guilt. And even as an adult, having moved away from that mentality, I still catch myself all the time feeling guilty about things. Like I should do this. I feel like I should do this. I feel obligated to do all of these things. And when I listened to that episode with Dr. Pockle talking about like replacing what would happen if we just got rid of the word should, if we just Mm -hmm. replaced it entirely. So now when I have those thoughts of like, oh, I should do this. Let's say I have the thought of, I should scoop the litter boxes before I go to bed tonight. I stop, I go, okay, why do I think I should do this? It is important to me to scoop the litter boxes before I go to bed because it's important to make sure that the cats have a clean space to go to the bathroom. If they don't have a clean space to go to the bathroom, they might choose somewhere else that I'm not fond of. So it's important to me to do this to provide for their needs. But that feels different. To be able to say, this is important to me because. Yeah. Or maybe I feel like I should do something and I stop and I realize, does that really matter? No, it doesn't. Nobody cares if I start a load of dishes before I go to bed. I can do it tomorrow. No one's going to be mad at me. If my husband asks why I didn't start the dishes that night, I'll say, you know what? I was really, really tired. Is it okay if I do it tomorrow? He'll be like, yeah, totally. That's fine. So why go around with all this guilt? Mm -hmm. And when I cut loose that word should, when I let it go, when I replace it with, because you can't just stop doing a behavior as all Mm -hmm. us trainers know. (laughs) Really? (laughs) When I replace it with like, this is important to me because, or you know what? This doesn't really matter. It changes everything. And instead of now approaching things like, oh, I shouldn't eat right before I go to bed, or I shouldn't eat this, or I should eat this. Now it's like, you know what? I deserve to feel good about my body. I deserve to feel healthy. I'm going to choose not to eat those last two bites of food, even though I don't love to waste food. I would much rather feel healthy and not be overeating. How freeing is that? Wow. Yeah, that's great. That is wonderful. And should is a really important word to train our ears to listen for. Or, you know, even our mental ear, because a lot of times it's just coming in our in our head. But yeah, it's one of those things that 
becomes a part of the cultural fog, honestly. Like we have, it, it's coming all the time, the shoulds, the shoulds, the shoulds. And we don't always know what part of us is so sure that we should. Like for the most part, it's often a message from outside that doesn't really matter to us. And yet we're still feeling the weight and the guilt and carrying that. And that is heavy and exhausting. So stopping to examine it and say, what's important here to me? And then reframing with the, well, it's important to me to do this because, and then have the benefit, awesome. Or then say, this is something that I'm carrying from other people's thoughts, you know, from my childhood that don't actually have anything to do with this moment and the dishes in the sink. (laughs) Yeah. I'm going to let that go. (laughs) I think the other piece that's been um, really big for me is Veronica B., from uh, dog biz mm-hmm. and she kind of when she talks about master schedules she talks about like the big rocks you know or the mm-hmm. rocks and like the difference between urgent and important yep and in my work at the aquarium warehouse everything feels urgent like it feels like i'm constantly prioritizing putting out fires and then i come home and i'm exhausted and i have nothing for my husband and my family and so her idea of like put the big rocks in first at the start of the day, I'm going to decide, like, if I get nothing else done today, I want to do this. This is most important. I need to do this. And so instead of procrastinating and putting it off, which I would normally do because I'm like anxious about all the important things that feel like, well, urgent things that feel important. Yeah. That I have to go, okay, hang on. I want to make sure that this gets done. Let's do this first. And then I can feel good about the rest of the day. And have time to do other things that are very fulfilling to me. Like the end of the week, just this week, actually, I was able to get done with my primary responsibilities at the aquarium warehouse, which left me with two hours of extra time that I could devote to helping out with some of the fish that don't always get as much attention and care. So that felt really good. Yeah. And that is probably a good spot to to kind of talk a little bit about the line between important and urgent because it can get muddy at times. Mm-hmm. So important are the activities that fill you up and make you feel like you're kind of working towards something of value that that has a longer term ripple, which can be something as simple as my own inner peace and health, you know, but that there is an impact that that lasts with the important things. They're meaningful. Urgent can also be important in the sense of this this aquarium needs to be cleaned. Well, if I don't do that, you know, are you saying it's not important that these these fish might be in a dirty that's a different kind of important. So we're trying to keep that clearly in the urgent category of that it often is someone else's priorities or something else that isn't really connecting to your deeper meaning, your deeper purpose, your experience of this life. Mm-hmm. Um and so those can get those can get squishy for people when they're looking at things. They can have a little trouble of saying, well, I mean, some of these urgent tasks do matter to me. And I'm like, absolutely, great. But let's get clear about, you know, five years from now, what which day are you going to feel better about? Are you going to feel better about the day that you ran around, you know, getting all your stuff done or the day that you got all your stuff done? And then there were two hours at the end that you were able to dedicate to giving a little more environmental enrichment to the fish that hadn't been getting it. Mm. There's a very different feeling inside you when you look back on those days. Yeah. 
Absolutely. And I think a lot of that for me, again, it was from Veronica and in dog biz and her talk about master Mm -hmm. schedules. She was talking about as pet professionals, as animal lovers, we tend to take on a lot of responsibility onto ourselves. Mm-hmm. And we sometimes tell ourselves the story that if we don't do it, no one will do it mm-hmm. and these animals will suffer. Mm-hmm. And sometimes we have to step back and be like, hang on, is that true? If I don't water change these aquariums, if I don't feed these fish because I only have eight hours in the day and then I need to go home, is it true that no one will do it? No, there's managers that will step up and make sure the essential stuff gets done. I'm not expected to do everything. I'm expected to do eight hours of the best work that I can and then go home. There's managers, there's business owners that step in and take care of the essential pieces if I can't do it. If you are the business owner and you're running the operation all by yourself, I think it would be harder But you still need to set boundaries and be like, okay, just because I don't answer this email this weekend, the exact day that it came in, does that mean that this client won't get help? No. Yeah. You have to have reasonable boundaries. Otherwise, you burn out. Like at some point, your body's going to be like, excuse me, I need rest. Excuse me, I need rest. Excuse me. And you're going to fall flat on your face because you keep being like, I can't rest. I can't rest. I have to keep working. There's so much to get done. But you push yourself too hard and you burn out permanently and you won't be in the field making a difference for animals anymore. So you're much better off to be like, hold on right now. I need to take care of me. Put the oxygen mask on yourself first, right? Yeah, it is the hardest lesson to learn. It really is the hardest lesson to learn. But the reality is that in that period where we're running around doing all the things that need to be done, we're doing them more slowly, less efficiently, less clearly, less decisively, less productively than if we had been at our best. And the only way to be at our best is to take these regular breaks and keep connecting to what matters to us and keep refilling and refueling. And and it's a challenge because we can let ourselves get to the spot where the weekend away does not fill you back up. And then you're like, well, it wasn't even worth it. Was it that it wasn't worth it? Or was it that it wasn't enough, consistent right. and and repeated? And, and yeah. the idea that it is selfish to take care of yourself is completely backwards and so pervasive because the more we can actually commit to to finding those things that matter and doing them, you know, putting the big rocks in first, doing what matters, the more energy we will have to support others to do things to to get stuff done yeah. and it's it's tricky but when the light bulb goes well, i guess i have to say the light bulb came on for me and then went off and came on and off and came on went off and mostly it's on you know so but that is a lesson that that when people start to see it's freeing Mm-hmm. When they start to see that and they start to honestly believe that there is nothing selfish or shameful, and we do have a lot of shame culture around it, mm-hmm. of taking care of yourself, taking a break, taking time, taking care of your body, taking care of your emotional needs, going out with friends. These things are actually needs. Yes, absolutely. And 
they should be met. Yeah, you have to recharge yourself. Otherwise, you know, you're working in a constant state of burnout and that can only last so long. And you're not doing your best work. Like you said, you're running around zipping from one thing to another, scatterbrained, trying to do all these urgent things. One thing that's made a big difference for me, and this is going to sound backwards and crazy, but I am such a perfectionist and I'm such a like list maker. So I tend to make a huge to-do list of all the things that I'd like to get done over the weekend, then get overwhelmed and do nothing. I've just stopped making to-do lists for the weekend entirely. And for some people, that wouldn't be the right path. Mm-hmm. But for me, it's been so freeing because now I don't have this heavy burden of, I feel like I'm obligated to do mm-hmm. these things that I've written on this piece of paper. It's just like, no, nope, you know what? It's the weekend. It's my time off. If I want to wear pajamas and watch Netflix all day, I'm going to. If I want to eat cake for breakfast, I'm going to. <laughs> so it's been it's been incredibly freeing. It's, yeah. it's so great. I'm curious. I don't want to put you on the spot here. But when you give yourself permission to wear pajamas and watch Netflix all day and eat cake all the time, do you find <laughs> that you actually don't do that all the time? Like you actually do get things done or you can balance active and passive activities. Yes. When you give yourself permission, then you're not necessarily just living in overwhelm or mm-hmm. wallowing in self-pity all day long. But you can enjoy those those moments more, you know, yeah. whether it's a, a moment of productivity and I'm enjoying it because I got something done. It wasn't even on a list, but I got it done. And that feels so, um, or it's like, Hey, I had some cake and it was really great. And it's Mm -hmm. not like I had cake because I was depressed or I wore my pajamas all day because I was depressed. It was like, I wore my pajamas because they're comfortable and it was fun. And Mm -hmm. that's really great. It's, it's made an incredible difference for me. The energy that you describe that with, I hope people really hear because there are a lot of people who have told me that they spent the weekend in pajama watching Netflix but they're not feeling delighted that they gave themselves the treat of that. They're feeling exhausted that that's really all they had energy to do. And even that didn't refuel them. Mm. And it is again, the thinking behind it Mm. and the, and the choices being made that support, you know, how, how we move through the world. So I think that when people listen to that, they will hear that in just in the way you described that about I'm in my pajamas because they're comfy. There's something like, yay, this is what I pick as opposed to I'm not getting dressed today. Yeah. It's a very (laughs) different energy for sure. And I carry that into everything I do over the weekend. So if it's like I choose to do a load of dishes, it's not because I should. It's because I would like the kitchen to be a little tidier. It feels good. I'm going to do some dishes. Or I'm going to go ride my tricycle around the neighborhood. But Mm -hmm. whatever I'm doing, it's like, I almost feel like a little kid, you know, and it's so much fun because it's not that I'm obligated and guilt ridden. I get to just enjoy my weekend off and do, maybe I'll do something productive. Maybe I won't, but it's not out of a feeling of obligation anymore. And it's not because I feel drained and exhausted. I actually find my weekends rejuvenating. That is awesome. Yeah, I love that, Misty. I love that. So if you had one wish that you could wish for all of the pet professionals in the world, what would you wish for us? Oh, what a big question. I would wish 
that everyone could find some type of freedom, whatever that looks like for them, some type of freedom from this sense of guilt being laid over top of you like a lead blanket, this like feeling that you should, and all these expectations that come from yourself, that come from other people, that come from the cultural perceptions, all of these layers of expectations that weigh us down, whether it's our own or our clients or our family or whoever is putting these on us, I would wish that we could just strip those layers away and just be who we are. And I think that's one of the greatest lessons that animals of other species can teach us is they don't have those layers of culture that we do. They don't have the same pressures and expectations they're living now and they're enjoying now whatever that may be. So I think, yeah, be more like the animals that you work with (laughs) and be less burdened by expectations. That's wonderful. I've so enjoyed talking with you today, Misty. If people wanted to learn more about you and your work, how could they do that? Check out my website, which is fellowcreaturespets.com. And hopefully in the near future, I'll be launching a YouTube channel and a social media page as well. If people want to just connect with me personally, I'm also on Facebook and I post a lot of my animal training endeavors. I also highly recommend joining an animal trainer's community, such as your you know, circle of thriving pet professionals or the Animal Training Academy. It's been a great resource for me and I'm a part of that community. We all share our training journey together. So I would encourage people to connect with the community such as that, and they can find me there. Awesome. Thank you so much. This was really fun talking to you. It's been delightful. Thanks for listening to Unleashed at Work and Home. I invite you to come learn more at ColleenPilar.com, where you can be steady, be strong, and be long.